I did not get the memo in time to change my sermon plans for this morning, but I was told by a number of my colleagues who are celebrating today that this is Star Wars Sunday <laughs> with a gentle wishing, may the fourth be with you. Well, I went looking for little bottles of, of bubbles like they hand out at weddings, and I couldn't find those, and balloons are latex, and I know we have latex allergies to be concerned about, so the best I could come up with for you was a bad pun. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can blame whoever it was who gave me this question last May at the Stump the Minister question box Sunday sermon. Somebody wrote... It seems that much of our consumerism and social interaction is founded on getting thrills or kicks. Do these elements have a place in the lives of decent people? If yes, to what extent? Unsigned, of course. And there are a lot of directions that that one could have gone in. Uh, not knowing who asked the question, I couldn't go back to that person for a, a clearer indication of what direction they might have hoped I would follow. One could explore the ubiquitous and invidious role of marketing, advertising in our culture. One could look at extreme sports, the desire for an adrenaline rush. Or less benignly, one could explore the tragic realities of addiction in any number of forms. But what I decided to do was explore an underlying issue that I think touches on all those others and ask, what are we supposed to believe about ourselves? How are we meant to live? One option is, in accordance with the consumerist ideal, being influenced by the advertising in which we are inundated. It has been uh, estimated that the typical American is exposed to 3,000 pieces of advertising every day. And we are affected by it, even if we think we're too sophisticated to be taken in. In flooding, our culture define us as winners or losers, keeping score. The snake is alive and well in our contemporary culture. In fact, the snake is our contemporary culture. It's all about keeping score. The better option, and the far more difficult one, is to live in accordance with a far more human and humane model by turning our backs on the snake. We're challenged to return to a healthier understanding of who we are and what we are. We are creative, imperfect, loving, self-doubting, laughing, sorrowing human beings, far more alike than we are different, and all of us in this thing called life together. The snake tells us who we are supposed to be letting ourselves be brainwashed into being, which is what the advertisers want us to be, pure consumers, needy people who will spend money in order to be decent people as defined by the snake, wearing the right clothes, driving the right car, eating the right foods, drinking the right beverages, not so much smoking the right death-producing uh, cigarettes, but they're still out there in advertisements as well. If you want to see what is supposedly normal, just pay attention to advertising. We're being sold products, yes, but even more, we're being sold on what our self-image is supposed to be. 
on values, on concepts of success and failure, of love and sexuality and attractiveness and popularity. The snake culture wants us to feel that we are flawed, that we are seriously lacking, that we are imperfect. It warns us against appearing to be uncool or out of control or inappropriately different. The snake does not want us to play. And how might we counteract that? One strong recommendation coming out of psychology, neurobiology, and evolutionary developmental theories is quite simple. We need to return to the practice of genuine, rather than consumerist, play. Now what's genuine play and why does it matter? I would guess that any of you thinking about it for a few minutes could come up with a list very much like the five properties that identify genuine play that Stuart Brown gives in his book. Play is, first of all, apparently without purpose. It is done for its own sake. It's voluntary. You may be invited into it, but participation is your choice. It has an inherent attraction. It's fun. It looks like fun. It sounds like fun. It feels like fun. And that fun is its own reward. It creates a sense of freedom from time by creating a sense of, of flow, of being in the moment, being in the zone, and losing track of clock time. It also creates a diminished consciousness of self, again, with that experience of being there in the moment, in the flow, not worrying about looking silly or being perfect or doing everything just right. Play has what Brown calls improvisational potential, being open to surprising changes, to, to serendipity, to creativity, to new insights, new understandings of how things might work, uh, a sense of exploration, experimentation, and discovery. And finally, play creates a continuation desire. When the play is genuine, we want to keep on going. We're sorry when it ends. We want to do it again, preferably soon. Quoting Brown, Stepping out of a normal routine, finding novelty, being open to serendipity, enjoying the unexpected, embracing a little risk, and finding pleasure in the heightened vividness of life, these are all qualities of a state of play. These properties are what make play the essence of freedom. The things that most tie you down or constrain you, the need to be practical, to follow established rules, to please others, to make good use of time, all wrapped up in a self-conscious guilt, are eliminated. Play is its own reward, its own reason for being. Now, play may seem to be without purpose, but in fact, it is vitally important. For individuals and for species, play has a huge evolutionary developmental role. Play creates safe simulations for exploring the world and creating imaginative new ways of interacting with the world and with others. It's long been realized that play by young mammals, including humans, helps provide 
practice for more serious encounters and tasks and abilities later in life. It's not just that the rough housing or the tea parties for the teddy bears or the pushing of toy vacuum cleaners or the diapering of the baby doll are the mimicking of adult behaviors seen in the home or on television or elsewhere, although indeed they are. But more importantly, that play is vitally necessary for socialization, for learning social cues, being able to tell a friend from a not a friend, discovering how to handle one's physical prowess without causing harm to others. Play is about acting and interacting learning to explore, to develop the imagination, to get along with others, to interact with the world around us. And play organizes the brain. The act of playing creates countless new neural connections that lead to greater creativity, greater insight and innovation and improved socialization. Play develops the brain's frontal cortex, that part of the brain that lets us separate important information from the unimportant, the irrelevant, that monitors and organizes our thoughts and feelings, that sees the outcomes of actions and plans for the future. Play also develops the cerebellum, which is responsible for attention, for language processing, and for sensing musical rhythm, among other things. The brain needs play. Individuals need play and groups of people need play, need to play together in order to build relationships, build connections, build trust, create a more humane community. One of the stories that Brown tells in his book is of some adult uh, volunteers at a youth center, very much like the uh, Illinois Youth Center just out of town in St. Charles, who went in with a soapbox derby car dismantled that they were going to put together with the help of the kids. And the kids were sent out into the play area, and they gathered in their gangs. They gathered in their groups. The African-American kids were over here. The Asian-American kids were over there. The Hispanic kids were over there. The white kids were over there, and they were not mixing with one another. They were in their own groups, and they were not at all open to whatever was going to happen. Thank you very much. So the two adults who were there with their soapbox derby car started taking the pieces of the car out of their packing container and started slowly putting the car together and talking to each other about what was going to go where and how they were going to do this. And eventually the kids started getting a little more interested in what was going on in that. And eventually one or two of the kids couldn't stand it anymore because these adults were being so dumb and taking so long and just obviously didn't know what they were doing. So a couple kids from different groups went in and started building the car with the adults. And then, of course, a couple other kids came in. And by the time the car was successfully put together, all of the boys had been part of the team putting the car together. And now, said one of the adults, we're going to try this baby out. So who's the lightest weight of all of you kids? Okay, and he pointed to one of the young African-Americans and said, I think you're the shortest. You're going to be the driver. You've got to steer this baby. And I now, who are, who are the two biggest? Who are the two strongest? Okay, you and you from the Hispanic group and the Asian group. And you too from the group of white kids. You get down there and mark the end of the track. And zoom, went the car down the incline and the kids spent the rest of the afternoon fighting in a friendly way for once over who was going to get to be the driver and who was strong enough to be the muscles behind their muscle car. 
and who would be laying out the course that the uh, driver and the, the muscles, the engines, would have to follow. They had so much fun doing it that they asked the adults to please bring another car the following week, which they did, and the week after that. And it came to be such an important way for these groups of young men to get together and play across their boundaries, no longer paying attention to which corner of the playground they were supposed to be hiding in. But one young man who was due to be released asked if his release date couldn't be delayed so he could have one more day with the cars. The research is very clear. When people play together, the level of societal violence is reduced, levels of caring and sharing increase, empathy improves dramatically. For something that Brown characterized as having no purpose beyond itself, play seems to carry a lot of responsibility. But when we are actually playing, we are probably not thinking about how much benefit our brains or our social awareness or our levels of creativity may be getting. We're just having fun. But there comes a point in time, says the snake, when the fun gets better if it becomes more serious. And we are persuaded as we grow up into adulthood that it is better if we're keeping score all the time, working to become a winner, fearful of becoming a loser. And this is dangerous psychologically, physiologically, emotionally, cognitively. As Brown points out, true play remains essential for adults. Without it, he says, our mood darkens, we lose our sense of optimism, and we become incapable of feeling sustained pleasure. When we stop playing, we start dying. Continuing Brown's words, we are pushed away from play, shamed into rejecting it by a culture that doesn't understand the human need for it and doesn't respect it. Play is seen as something that children do, so playing is seen as a childish activity not done in the adult world. The message is that if you are a serious person doing serious work, you should be serious, seriously. <laughs> now that's not to say we don't need work, we do. We need to have purpose, we need to have that sense that we are needed, that our skills are valued and appreciated, that we have competence. We need economic stability, we need to feel we're doing something for the larger world, that we're doing our part, pulling our own weight, contributing. But sacrificing play in order to be seriously working all the time is deadly. If we don't or we won't play because we've become grown-ups and we don't want to look silly or be perceived as out of control or immature or not adequately serious about our responsibilities, we create a void in our lives that the snake is all too ready and willing to fill. We get pulled back into the snake culture that tells us we need products, we need things, we need to spend our money for items that will make us happy, that will make us feel fulfilled and satisfied with our lives. And there are always more products that we need. So we seek the comfort of being defined 
the comfort of prescribed activities. We become preoccupied with meeting other people's expectations of us rather than paying attention to our own desires and values and goals. We pay attention to who's wearing what kind of clothing in the group I want to hang with, I have to buy that too. Who's driving what kind of car in the group of people I want to belong to, I'll have to drive that too. Who owns what in the group I want to belong to, I better have it too. The idea becomes that if you have the right alcohol on the shelf, the right ice cream in the refrigerator, that one might be true. <laughs> the right candy in the dish, the right car in the driveway, then you are the right kind of decent person. The snake has you defined. You keep score, dividing people into winners and losers and putting ourselves in one of those columns as well, which feels okay if you count yourself a winner. But it's not so good. It's shaming if we fear we're on the loser's side. And we always have to be on the loser's side because if we're not on the loser's side, then we don't need the new products. And we need to need those products to keep the wheels of commerce going around. We amuse ourselves. We try to fill ourselves with food, with alcohol, with drugs, with accumulating things we don't really want and certainly don't need, but want to have in order to try to fill that void that only true joy can fill. We need to learn to be far more discriminating, far more intentionally critical of what our culture tells us is how we are supposed to be and what we are supposed to do and what we ought to want and what we should strive to possess. Brene Brown, another professional researcher whose main area of interest is the power of shame in our lives, suggests that when we are being manipulated by the advertising industry in particular, which is all the time, we need to stop and ask ourselves, Three questions. Is it real or is it fantasy? Does it respect my life, my body, my family, my relationships, or does it turn them into objects or commodities? Who benefits by my seeing these images and feeling bad about myself? Hint, this is always about money or control. It is certainly not in your best interest to long for a car that is as impractical as it is expensive, or to be persuaded that a particular candy bar or ice cream will mean that the mean, nasty old world will go away, or to accept the suggestion that a particular beer or wine or liquor will make the night go better or to decide that because you will never look like any of the models you see selling you these products, you yourself are too fat, too old, too unattractive, too ethnic, too imperfect to be of value in what is a terribly superficial culture in which we are being tricked into caring more about the power under the hood than the well-being of the planet underneath the wheels the paint around the eyes than the well-being of the person beneath the colors, the cool factor of the shoes rather than the horrible cost, financial and human, when the shoes become the object of perceived need 
and then of jealousy, and then of violence. One way of fighting back, gently, humanely, against this culture of superficiality, and in the process, regaining the energy, the perspective, the imagination to address the real issues from which we are being distracted, is to return to our ability to play. Recreation is recreation, a way of recreating, refreshing the world and ourselves within it that enables us to face its legitimate demands and needs with more optimism, self-confidence, acceptance of responsibility, a sense of community that we will otherwise not possess. We need to be willing to be silly sometimes, to be uncool in the eyes of the frightened lockstep culture. We need to be willing to be not childish, but childlike now and again in order to refresh our minds, our bodies, our souls. Specific play is apparently purposeless but it serves an immensely important purpose, and we need to remember that. We too often forget how to interact with one another just for the fun of it, to play as equals, as peers, as friends, who want and need to feel connected, not to make points. We need to laugh and sing and dance to play together because that heals the body, the mind, the spirit, and brings us together. As Brene Brown has put it, laughter, song, and dance create emotional and spiritual connection. They remind us of the one thing that truly matters when we are searching for comfort, celebration, inspiration, or healing. We are not alone. I'm going to be talking later in the new church year about how specifically the culture of shaming holds us back from being the creative, playful beings we have evolved to be and what else we can do about that. But for now, I want to repeat that affirmation from Stuart Brown that joy is our birthright and is essential to our being who we are meant to be. Hold fast to that affirmation. Go out and play and stop listening to that snake. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its beauty, its promise, its hope out into the world that needs you. Go forth together, be peace, and go play. Blessed be and amen.